this I've shared with some of you, and I know with our deacons especially, this has been kind of an intense year for me and for the Broadways. Just it's just been intense, not bad, just intense, and and the intensity of it. Um, I find that my anxiety level rises. I don't know if any of you are like that. You guys probably never experienced anxiety. So you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about how we Christians ought to, how we ought to react to the intense seasons of life where it's just, it's busy and responsibilities feel heavy and there's many balls in the air and, you know, how are we as Christians to react to this? Because the world's advice would be, you know, well, maybe you need to simplify and cut some things out of your life, or maybe you need to do some yoga or eat some vegetables or get some exercise, and then that'll make you feel at peace and whole, and then you'll be centered or whatever. And while some of those things are beneficial, you should exercise, you should eat vegetables. You can't expect to feel great all the time if you eat ice cream all the time and just watch TV all day, every day. So there is some wisdom to those things. But as Christians, I know that we have resources sufficient enough that we can thrive under any circumstance, even very intense times. So I've been thinking a lot about that, and I've got many different scriptural texts in my mind. And I wanted in this sermon to just give to you some of what I've been meditating on. Uh, and Jeff read one of the passages, and we're actually not even going to go back to that passage again. So I hope you're listening well and took all that in. One, one passage I'll read to you now, this, this will sort of function as our springboard into the other passages, is Jeremiah 17. None of this is going to be projected. We're going to look at too many different passages. But I would like you to try to look at them with me in your Bibles. I think there's something very helpful about seeing the words and following along. So we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 17, and this will be the theme passage for the sermon. Jeremiah 17, starting at verse 7. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tells his people this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. That's really important, so I'm going to read that again. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now this passage teaches what many other passages teach. If we want to be spiritually healthy, whether it's an intense season or not, if we want to be spiritually healthy, it starts with trust. It starts with trusting God. To be spiritually nourished, to experience that peaceful wholeness, the resilience of this evergreen tree that Jeremiah describes, this fruitfulness, it starts with trusting in the Lord and the Lord being our trust. If you skip that step and try to implement tips and tricks and life hacks and all these things, you will not find spiritual nourishment, spiritual resiliency, deep peace and wholeness and fruitfulness. Instead, what you'll find is 
You'll be undernourished or malnourished, depending on what you are trusting in. You'll experience anxiety and frustration and spiritual barrenness. You won't experience spiritual fruit. You'll be withering and drying up. All dependent upon your trust in the Lord. Basically what Jeremiah is saying, or what, what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah is, you're like a tree. You're like a tree. And as a tree, you have a root system. And in this case, your faith is your root system. And whatever your root system of faith is sinking into, that's where you're going to derive your, your spiritual nutrition. Now, you're designed for your faith, your spiritual root system, to sink into God himself, trusting in God himself. And when you do, you thrive. When your root system stretches over into other things, your family, your job, your home, anything else, when, you're, when you sink your roots into those things for security and peace and the energy you need to live and direction, you shrivel up. Your faith is your root system. God's faithfulness is the rich, dark soil you're meant to be planted in. So today, I just want to do some root work. And this is for my benefit and for yours. Um, I really only have one message for you today. I could just preach this sermon in three words and we could all go and eat lunch. But that's not what's going to happen. You know that. But my one big message for you guys today is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He really, really is. God is faithful. That word faithful means that God is firm, he's secure, he's stable, he's steady, he's true, he's trustworthy, he's sure, he's faithful. He's not this vague, wishful idea. He's a, a firm reality. You know, standing on God and his promises is not like standing on a tall, wobbly ladder. Has anyone ever stood on a tall, wobbly ladder? I know Larry was doing some work at the Parsons that had him on a pretty tall ladder. You feel pretty insecure on that, any little movement, and you feel it budge, and you feel like you're going to just come collapsing to the ground. God is not like a tall, wobbly ladder. He's like a, a massive, mighty mountain. He's secure. He's not like a, an unpredictable parent who is... Peaceful and loving one moment and then flies off the handle the next moment. He's steady. He's not like all the false gods in our lives that give us false promises for happiness and peace that end up empty and hollow. He's the one true God. His promises are sure. Now, if you're like me and you're very practical, the question that should be on your mind is, Okay, how do I trust in God's faithfulness? Like, I, I generally believe all that. God's faithful. You know, I've heard that since my Sunday school years. I think that's a great thing. But how do I actually trust in that? I'm in the throes of anxiety right now. I'm having a panic attack right now. Well, how do I trust in God's faithfulness? What I'd like to do over the next few minutes is just give you just five implications of God's faithfulness to try to to bring this idea down to earth and make it practical and actionable for you to trust in God's faithfulness. Now, there's many more. I, I trim this back from closer to 10 because the Bible's full of, of 
God's faithfulness. So this is definitely just scraping the surface, but I just want to give you five implications of God's faithfulness to help us to truly trust in him and to be like this tree Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah 17. So the first one is this. God is faithful to forgive so you can trust him for your salvation. God is faithful to forgive so you can trust him for your salvation. Now, I know there are people who live their entire Christian life with an insecurity about their salvation. They hit a season in which they're not walking closely with God and they start to wonder, am I even a Christian at all? Or they hear a convicting sermon about the things you ought to be doing if you're a Christian and they start to fear, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Am I good enough? Am I religious enough? Is my belief of high enough quality that I truly am a Christian? Now, to be clear, many people do need to feel insecure about their salvation because they're not saved. Many people do get caught up into a churchy culture and they never actually experience the transformational gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, but it's easy to know if that's you. The way you know if that's you is you look at your heart and you see, do I have love for God that's growing? Do I have love for people that's growing? Do I have a desire to follow Jesus Christ, hear what he says in the word and respond in obedience? Those are good signs that you truly are a Christian. Okay, now if you ask those questions and you see, no, I don't care about God. I, I may go to church, but I'm eager just to get home, watch the race and eat lunch or whatever. I sing these songs, but they're hollow in my heart. It means nothing. You know, I, I love people as much as anybody does, so long as they're lovely. You know, I'll be nice to them, but if they cut me off in traffic, like Jeff was talking about in Sunday school, then forget that. And if, as far as Jesus goes, I think he's a good guy, but I don't have a whole lot of time to listen to what he says. And his words have not impacted my life in any way in the last several decades. Now, those are bad signs. If that's you, you're probably not a Christian. Okay? But who I really want to talk to right now are the believers, the ones who truly have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are disciples. They are following him, walking with him, although imperfectly, who are often plagued by doubts of your salvation and insecurity about it. That's who I really want to talk to right now. I want you to remember a couple of passages of Scripture. First, I'll read to you John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. At his core, Christianity is pretty simple. Believe it and accept it, and you're in. You don't have to religion your way into it. You don't have to morality your way into it. Another passage I want to share with you is John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting at verse 27. Jesus, again, in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Hear how simple that is? How do you know if you're one of his sheep? Well, do you hear his voice and 
follow him? That's a good indicator that you're his sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. No one is able to snatch you out of the father's hand once you are a flock of God's in God's, once you are sheep in God's flock. You don't have to be insecure. You have a good shepherd. You don't have to worry that your next sin is going to be the, la- the straw that broke the camel's back and he's going to kick you out. And then lastly, 1 John 1, 9. First John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins... If we come to him and say with him, yes, I have fallen short of your perfect holiness. I confess, please forgive me, please cleanse me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is sure and steady and trustworthy. And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I think... Some people, and this doesn't affect every Christian, but some Christians struggle with this and they feel like they believe the gospel, but they feel like their belief in the gospel is so imperfect that maybe it's not enough. Maybe they're not genuinely saved. And what I want to encourage you, if that's you with, is that it's not about how perfect your faith is. It's about how faithful God is. So even imperfect faith in the perfect faithfulness of God is saving The thief on the cross was every bit as saved as the apostle John who walked very closely with Jesus. You think his faith was perfected? I mean, he understood very little. It was a very fundamental kind of simple faith. That's what the whole faith as the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Because it's not about your powerful faith. It's about the powerful object of your faith. It's as though if you're, you're in a lake and, and your boat starts to capsize and it's sinking and you jump into the other boat. It's not how good your form was when you jumped into the other boat. It's not how, how uh, the pose you're striking now that you're standing in the boat. You're just in the boat. So you're okay. Okay, trust and follow Jesus Christ and you're in. You're in the boat. And it's dependent upon his faithfulness that you can feel total security in your salvation. Christians, you, you do not need to feel insecure about your salvation if you are trusting and following Jesus. And we have an enemy that likes to accuse us and likes to tempt us into sin and then get on, get on with accusations after we've sinned. And he can make us try to doubt our faith, doubt our salvation. And we can just silence him and say, no, my God is faithful. I'm a sheep of his flock. I didn't earn it, but I've received it. You can, one way that you can trust God's faithfulness is by resting in his faithfulness for your salvation. Okay, let me give you another way. This is sort of the flip side of that coin. God is faithful to sanctify his people. So you can trust him for your growth as a Christian. Another way to trust in God's faithfulness is to trust him for your growth as a Christian. Because he's faithful to sanctify his people. We're going to be going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
for this one. And as you're finding 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just want to clarify some terms. So you have salvation and you have sanctification. Okay, they're connected, but they're not the same thing. Salvation is what we have been talking about. That's when God reaches down through Jesus Christ and plucks you up out of the water, puts you in the boat of salvation. He saves you, forgives you, cleanses you. And then positionally, you are holy and righteous in God's sight because you are in Christ. You'll see that term a lot in the Bible, in Christ. Okay? Sanctification, on the other hand, is the process throughout the whole rest of your life by which God actually transforms you into holiness. So one way I like to picture this when I teach it to the youth is you imagine it, it's like a, a robe. So imagine that in order to be saved, you have to have this special robe, okay? And God comes and he gives you the robe and it gives you access to being in the kingdom of God with him. But the robe's like huge. And you're just a kid. It's, it's this massive robe. You look ridiculous. You don't fit in it at all. Now, God looks at you and he sees the robe of holiness, the robe of righteousness on you. And now the whole rest of your life, you're in the kingdom growing into this robe of righteousness, growing in to it, filling it out more and more over time. So salvation is where you're positionally made holy. God sees you as holy in Jesus Christ. Now, are you perfect? Any of you Christians, have you sinned in the last week? Liars. Right now it's happening. Of course, we're not the perfect ones. Jesus is. And the amazing gift of the gospel is that we're giving his, we're given his record of perfection when we trust in his death on the cross for our sins. Positionally holy. Sanctification is the process through which we grow practically holy. Where that salvation is worked out into our lives and we actually start to look more like Jesus. And our old, our old person, our old selfish sinfulness is falling off more and more over time. Okay, does that make sense? I'll take that silence as a yes. Now again, some have never received this. And they've come into this whole church thing and they're just trying to act like this is happening. And it's exhausting. And it's fruitless. And you need to go back to this stage and just say, Father, please just forgive me and transform me. Because I'm exhausted from trying to act like I am becoming holier as I follow Jesus. Because apart from him, you have no power to sanctify yourself. Okay, but there's others who have received this and they are Christians and they, they have grown over the time that they've been following Jesus. But they feel stuck now. There are Christians who are in a season of life in which they are enslaved to some besetting sin. That's the term that, that a lot of theologians would use. A besetting sin is just a constant temptation that they feel no power to overcome. That can be an extremely dark and frustrating cycle to, to be in. This happens a lot with uh, sins of lust, of sexual lust. You know, you commit the sin and you feel awful about it and you confess to God and you ask for forgiveness and you say, I'm not going to do that again. And then one day, two day, three day, three days later, the temptation comes again and you fall right back into it. And it's so frustrating. And you feel like Paul when he says, um, I'm forgetting how he says it, but you know, wretched man that I am, I, the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. This happens a lot with uh, anger. 
Some people's particular besetting sin is anger. They really try to keep their composure, but something frustrates them and they just fly off the handle and they regret it and they can't seem to move past it. Happens to us, a lot of us with gluttony. You know, we abuse food, eat too much food, terrible food for us, abusing our bodies, um, dishonoring God with the way we interact with food, turning to food for comfort rather than him when we're stressed out. And we get done, we feel terrible, even physically. And we say, okay, I'm going to get a handle on this. I'm going to get self-discipline. But then the cycle continues. Now, those aren't the only sins that this happens with, but I want to read you a very encouraging passage if you're in that place in life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Paul, writing to a church, says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely sanctify you completely. He will surely sanctify you so completely that your whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just really want to encourage you who maybe are caught up in a cycle of sin. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't feel like, well, I guess this is just my lot in life. I'm just going to forever be enslaved to this sin. No, God is faithful to sanctify you. It will happen, not based on your willpower, but based on God's faithfulness. You know, in John 17, 17, you don't have to flip to this one, but Jesus actually prays for his people that they would be sanctified. So one way you can trust in God's faithfulness on the practical level is to rest in his faithfulness for your salvation, for your security, your assurance of salvation. Another way is to lean into your growth as a Christian with total confidence in his faithfulness to sanctify you. He will do it. You, you ought to over time see growth. And if you're not, you, ne- you need to turn to him And say, based on this passage, Father, you have said that you are faithful and you will sanctify your people. Will you please sanctify me? Will you please rid me of this desire for this sin? Will you please transform my heart so that I hate the sin the way you hate this sin? He will do it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Or maybe over time. But he's faithful to sanctify his people. A third way that we can trust in God's faithfulness. God speaks faithfully so we can trust in his word. God speaks faithfully so we can trust in his word. You know, it can be really frustrating if you're trying to be conscientious nutritionally or medically because over time, mankind learns more and more. And as we learn, we realize, oh, oops, we're wrong about that. Have any of you ever bought into a diet or some health thing and only later to find out, oh, no, that was actually unhealthy? 
It happens because humanity is learning. But God already knows everything. His word's never going to change. I remember Richard, I seem to mention Richard in every sermon now, but Richard has told me a story where he had some issue with his hand and the doctor had him put it into some machine and he found out later it was basically a microwave. He was just microwaving his hand. It was like some kind of heat therapy or something. Well, they would never tell you to put your hand in a microwave anymore because ultimately we don't really know that much. I wonder what in 50 years we're going to look back on You know, our kids and grandkids are going to say, I can't believe that they used to do that. I can't believe they used to have these little cancer pods and hold them to their heads and walk around. But God already knows everything, and God's word is certain. Let's look at Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, starting at verse 7. This is an awesome passage to motivate you to read your Bibles. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word is perfect, reviving the soul. It's sure, making wise the simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart. It's pure, enlightening the eyes. It's clean, enduring forever. I wonder if one of the reasons many Christians struggle to maintain any regular time in God's word is because they have this false sort of mystic osmosis view of how scripture works that, you know, if you read it in the morning, it's going to like sprinkle fairy dust on you. That's going to make you float through your day on a magical unicorn of holiness and blessedness. And everything's going to be perfect. But God's word is, is real. It's practical. It's, you can build your life with it. You can incorporate the things that God tells you here into your life in very real ways, it doesn't rub off on you. You you take it and like bricks for a house, you build it into your life. You might not feel any different after a time in the word in the morning, but you will have transformed your mind that much more to, to operate according to reality. See, the world is always pumping messages at you that will try to get you to operate according to lies. And God's word recalibrates your mind according to reality so you can live in light of God's faithfulness. You know, we, we want our souls to be revived and we look to the world's advice and it tells us to do breathing exercises and to carve out 20 minutes of the day for meditation. Now, those things might make you feel more chill for a little while. 
But God's word is perfect and it revives your soul. You know, we trying to get along, you know, raising our children or operating in our jobs or making decisions. And we realize how, how hard it is to make good decisions with all these variables going on. We're reminded that God's word is short and it makes wise the simple. There are precepts in here that genuinely will help you think. Rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever. It's true and altogether righteous. It's more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter than honey. By this is God's servant warned. And in keeping this, there's great reward. Second Timothy Chapter 3 teaches that all of this is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God could be equipped for every good work. Yet so many Christians just lead a Bible-closed life and expect to thrive like that tree in Jeremiah and wonder, why do I feel depressed all the time? Why do I feel anxious all the time? One very practical way that you can trust in God's faithfulness is to build your life on his faithful word. Build your life on this. It's not a pill to take in the morning to try to keep your sinful nature down. It's build your life on it. When you read a promise in this, it's a fact. And you can count on it. When you read a warning in this, you can heed that warning when you read a truth about God or, or how the world works, you can build that into your life and into your worldview with 100% confident that you're right. When you read a command in this, you can know that your good father who knows everything knows what he's talking about. And you can obey that with confidence that you're right. So you can trust in God's faithfulness by resting in his faithfulness for your salvation. By trusting in his faithfulness for your sanctification. By building your life on his faithful word. A fourth. God is faithful during temptation. So you can trust him when you're tempted. God is faithful when you feel temptation. If you're one of these who has this besetting sin that you can't get past. When you feel that temptation, remember, God is faithful to his people while they're being tempted. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. First Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He will not. Now, again, we can build our life on this. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I'm with some of you. I've experienced some pretty strong temptation in my day. 
And I've given in to some pretty strong temptation in my day. And in my flesh, I want to say that cannot be true. Because I've felt how, how hot temptation can get. But here we have God's perfect word telling us, I know it seems that way, especially in the heat of the temptation. I know it seems that way as if there's no escape, as if you can't possibly endure it, as if God has allowed you to experience more temptation than, than your ability can handle. But the fact is, if you'll look around, you'll find that he's provided with the temptation a way of escape. Now, it's up to you to take that way of escape, but there is a way of escape. There's always a way of escape because God is faithful. That's what it says here. God is faithful and then describes what he does for his people when they're tempted. So when you're being tempted, it's as if you're sitting in a house that's burning down around you. There's always an open door that you can escape. You've got to look for it. You've got to find it. You've got to crawl out of it. But it's there. And I know how, how tough temptation can be, even for a Christian, even for a Christian who's walking with the Lord. You know, it, going back to anger, you know, that temptation comes up in such a fiery flash. You have very little time to prepare for it. But you've got to believe that there's an escape. It might just be, the escape might just be being quiet. Maybe the escape is just don't say anything for a little bit and process this and take it to the Lord in prayer. And then you can speak in, you know, walking in the spirit, not in the anger of your flesh. You know, going back to the gluttony, the escape might just be get out of that kitchen, go call a Christian friend and say, pray for me because I'm tempted again to do the same thing again. And if it's pornography, the escape is probably getting into the light of day. If somebody else needs to know about your pornography problem, you're never going to escape it on your own. So let somebody know the temptation's here again and I really don't want to give in to it. Help me find the escape. Pray for me. Gossip, the escape hatch, you're in that conversation and you know in your heart you're tempted by gossip. It's fun to talk with your friend about all the bad stuff everybody else is doing. The escape hatch might just be saying a word in defense of the person being gossiped about or saying something positive about them or just hanging up the phone. I still would love, love, love if we would just hang up on one another if we start to gossip. I would love to hear a story of, well, I was talking to such and such and she hung up on me and then I remembered because I started gossiping. There's always a way of escape. One very practical way you can trust in God's faithfulness is when you're tempted, remember, I'm not in this alone. I have a faithful God and he's told me that there's an escape. And then the last one, I see people yawning. God is faithful during persecution, so you can trust in him if you're persecuted. Now, this one I built in here more in preparation for something we might face, because I don't really think that any of us are facing persecution right now directly. If it is, it's very mild. But we may very well face very real persecution. Our brothers and sisters around the world are. You know, you see the news reports about ISIS, and it can get, it can get scary, you can wonder, you know, if, if that was me in the, in the orange jumpsuit, would I be able to stand strong for the Lord? You know, everything we're hearing about the legislation regarding same-sex marriage 
And what is that going to mean for churches? What's that going to mean for me in terms of how I operate when people ask me to perform their wedding ceremony and, you know, trying to get our act together in terms of our facilities usage and what do we say if somebody wants to use our facilities for that? Are we going to get sued? You know, it's, it's something that we very well may experience. So I want to read to you this passage in preparation for it. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is our last point. So slap your face around. Get alert. We're almost done. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll start with verse 12, but verse 19 is really the, the big payoff verse for what we're talking about. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, it, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then here's verse 19. Listen to this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If the persecution comes to us, we can entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Persecution may come in such a form that it destroys our bodies, but it cannot destroy our souls. And nothing else can bear the weight of our soul being entrusted to it. We're not meant to entrust our souls to anything else other than our faithful creator. Not our families, not our homes, not our church, not our government, not our arsenal. Entrust your soul to your faithful creator. And then you'll be able to endure persecution and even continue to do good in the face of persecution. Now, I've tried to give you some, a small handful of practical ways Christians can trust in God's faithfulness. There's many other things that could be said, but I want us to be what's described in Jeremiah 17. And I'll close by reminding you of what he says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, please help us to trust in you and for you to be our trust. May we be like trees planted by water that send out our roots by the stream. May we not fear when heat comes. 
May our leaves remain green no matter the circumstances. May we not be anxious in years of drought. May we not cease to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.